0: Hey everyone, thanks for checking out the 21 Gun Podcast. I am your host, Kevin Sullivan. Tonight is part three of Hamidi Jazim, the terrorist whisperer. He recounts his amazing story of working to bring down Al-Qaeda operatives during the early years of the Iraq War. Before we get into part three, we have a few announcements. The first one being... 21 Gun is officially one year old. So I want to thank everyone that has been listening, that has been supporting the podcast. Um, I want to thank all the guests that came on and shared their stories. Without you, this would be nothing. So I'm very humbled and extremely appreciative of the time and, and help that I've received from you guys. Also a big thank you to the Irreverent Warriors who brought me on and allowed me to be their podcast They are a fantastic organization, and they just do great things. I met a lot of good people through them. Um, Russ Oxley, Andrew Farrar, Jeremy Walton... um, Anthony White, Nick Cervantes. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. And it's it's amazing that after one short year, uh, how close I've come with these folks. And it's it's a testament to their mission, and it's a testament to uh, Irreverent Warriors and what they do for veterans. So thank you to Irreverent Warriors. Uh, special thanks to Mike Stojic and Malia Christie over at Revival 1869. They helped out when we did our, our live shows. They bend over backwards for us, and they are absolutely a big part uh, of this show and and the success that we've had. So, uh, one year, can't believe it that went by very quickly. Uh, I tried to do I don't know one episode a week. I think we came out to about if I do the math, maybe one every ten days. We're working on it. We'll get there, and eventually, you know, ha- have more content coming up. But that's it. Uh, we do have a hike coming up. I-, I haven't seen anything about it being delayed or canceled or whatever. So that's over in. Uh, Wilmington, North Carolina. It's in my neck of the woods. So I, I'm going to do everything I can to make it down there. That is scheduled for June 13th. So head over to irreverentwarriors.com. Um, that'll give you all the info, you know, making sure that, that things are still going on and everything. But at this point it seems like it's on. So I'm planning on going June 13th down in Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, register today. You won't regret it. Tonight's episode is part three with Hamity Jazim, the terrorist whisperer. If you haven't heard parts one and two, go back and listen to them first before you listen to this episode. They were out two weeks ago. So without further ado, we'll get back into Hamity's story. Hamity begins with the aftermath of the Haifa Street ambush. His unit was decimated, injured, and demoralized. Some left. The ones who stayed had a hell of an uphill battle ahead of them. They were demoralized, outnumbered, outarmed, but they stayed nonetheless.
1: It's kind of crazy because for you, you have a giant army. You have a big army in the US Army. You have replacements. For Iraq at that time, the Iraq didn't have many soldiers. And we have a country that was at war. Nobody had any interest in joining the Iraqi military, unless you're a hopeless bastard like myself. And the people who were joining were joining for only two reasons. Either they were really wanted there, come and fight. Either they were there for the paycheck. So when the war got really brutalized in 2004, the people who were there for the paycheck left the job because, of course, their lives were more important than money. Sure, sure. So they left. So my first Iraqi salary that I ever received was about 150,000 dinars, which is equal about 100 bucks. And then when the Umbar province started. <laughs> I got about a million dinner, which was like six, seven hundred bucks. It was a big deal. I mean, this was like huge. So, um, you know, when I got the promotion, it it, it was not something like you are proud of or it's a pride. No, it was like you're dying and you're not. Now, the chances of you really dying is even higher. I was shot in the eye, I had a shrapnel in my knee, and I lost most of my men. In there, I didn't feel like I did a good job. I I felt like I lost my man, I lost everything. And my command sergeant major at the time, who was in my unit command sergeant major, quit and left the job. He quit. He was one of the people that walked out of the checkpoint, took his civilian clothes and got out. And uh, people just walked out of the unit. And that's what happened. The, The hardest point is that when you're a soldier, imagine yourself as an American soldier and you're working with other people in your unit and all of a sudden these individuals took off the uniform and left out of the base imagine the feeling i mean it's it was low morale because we were not equal with our enemy um our enemy had much more firepower than we did we i talked about it in the last podcast um we only had pkcs that's the biggest weapon that we owned we owned about ak-47 we had a pistol, which is a Walter P99. That's what we had in the new Iraqi military. And it perhaps is a 16-bullet magazine, but I would make it 17. I'll put one in the chamber. So the pistol AK-47, RPK, and PKCs. PKC, you can say it's equivalent of M249. That's what it is. But the M249 is so much better, faster than that. And it's a, you know, it's a tape kind of thing. And, and sometimes the tape might not be the right tape or the bullets are not high quality. It could blow up on your face. So you have that and your enemy has everything, RPGs, car bombs, everything. So imagine that most of these soldiers felt they were dismotivated. They didn't have the same power, firepower uh, as, as the enemy had. They did not expect themselves to be in a battle zone 24 hours. And that was the reality for us.
0: They were outnumbered, outgunned, outmoraled, and tested 24 hours a day. There were two ways to face these challenges, run and hide or stay and fight. Hamini chose to stay and fight, and the Iraqi and American leadership took notice.
1: For us, when we were stationed in a Air Force Base, which is the base that fought in Hyper Street, you go out and fight in Hyper Street, you come back to the base, it doesn't mean the war is over. They actually come to your own checkpoint and attack you at night. So the disturbance was 24 hours. Perhaps where we slept, we slept in a, um, a hotel that used to be a pilot hotel uh, for Saddam pilots. And it sits right behind the checkpoint in al Airfield Base. So you have the gate. You have the platoon that's holding the gate. And you have in the back um, an American uh, Bradley and with about maybe six, seven soldiers in it as a backup to the to the guys in the front of the gate. And about a mile and a half into the base, that's where the US pop is. But if if that front checkpoint fall, uh the soldiers, the Iraqi soldiers sleeping is right behind the checkpoint. So like it was it was disturbance 24 hours, man. Nobody mentally is a prepared for that. I think 50% of my soldiers who were back then signing up for the paycheck left. Their their interest is gone. The people that stayed with me after 2004, these are the guys that I continued the rest of the war with because these guys were there to fight. Uh, Most of them were Kurds, people from the south of Iraq. They're not from Baghdad. They don't live there. They were motivated to go fight. And I didn't have anything to lose. I mean, the, the the guys that I trained with in my PSD training in my NCS school, the guys who I bled and sweat with, stayed together with me. They never left me. And truly, the ones that left were the weak people. The people who are like, you know, it's easier for me just to really be out of a job and sit home instead of really getting killed by Al-Qaeda. I'm, at the end of, end of the day, it's, it's a, it's a human. There are some good people and there are some bad people. There are some courageous people and there are people that don't want to do that. And didn't have a reason to do so. So for me, I had a reason to not leave. I mean, if I left back home from Baghdad, I'll get beheaded in my neighborhood. They will sh- shred me. So what the options that I have other than staying? Staying in my unit and not leave. And, uh, you know, we just got defeated in a really big ambush. The whole ambush uh, uh, point was to capture an Iraqi soldier in uniform, behead him, put that out there so people get scared. And they accomplished their goal. And you lost your platoon commander, you lost your officer in charge, you, you you come back, you don't you have only about nine guys. It's all of us together. Um, I think just watching what the, the soldiers that left, mentally they were broken. And when you see a convoy goes out of the checkpoint, goes in towards Hyper Street, and you see that convoy comes back with only nine guys, and then they saw a QRF that went out was supposed to end that firefight. And the QRF came back being hurt and shot and have some casualties. They felt that you lost the battle. So they left. And at that point, I was devastated. I was like, what are we going to do? Like, we're going to die. At Th- that point, I realized that this is not a career. This is a death. You're going to die anyway. But how do you want to go down? Do you want to really stay or do you want to go home? And it was a weird moment. Um, I sat there and I got called into the Iraqi Ministry of Defense. And the Iraqi Minister of Defense have had a brief back then. He was a British citizen uh, and uh, born and raised in Iraq, actually. He called us up and grabbed all of us and he asked for a report about how the battle went down, how everything went down, because when we were fighting, we were fighting actually for the face of that government. You know, we were like officially the troops... That represented that Iraqi government. And if we have all gave up, uh, that Iraqi government would have looked terribly. So he came in and he did a battlefield promotions. I was the NCO that came out of the highest ranking NCO that came out of a place of life. So I got promoted. I was shocked, actually. I was expecting you know, to go from uh, a staff sergeant to a sergeant first class. That's, that's, the, that's the, the routine. So I was shocked. They said, well, in the Iraqi military, we do have this kind of promotions. We only did them in the 80s when we were fighting Iran. battlefield for promotion. So in the battlefield promotion, you're getting promoted to the highest ranking NCO. And I was like, well, but I have a command sergeant major in my unit. They're like, no, he's not there anymore. He left. And when he told me that, I don't know. If it was, you know, for people to be like, oh, you should be proud or happy. No, I wasn't happy. I'm like, my command sergeant major left. So he didn't have the motivation to actually stay. And he didn't he left. I have a picture to this day in my house with a picture that I took next to my command sergeant major in 2003. And a year later that I'm standing in his position, he's not there. And he left. I I, I took the job and I, I realized that, I you know, I was a kid at that point. I was only 18 years old. That's all my age. And at 18 years old, you're a kid. But I received something that requires me not to be a kid anymore. So I had to prepare myself to put myself in a mentality of a 45 years old. And how would be how would the 45 years old version of me would respond to the things that I was getting. So truly I think at that point in my life everything stopped. Anything about my life as a young person have went out of the window. Perhaps anything that I did after that point of my life, it was not someone of my age would do. Uh, The people I was hanging out with, the NCOs that I surround around me, I had an advisor that came in to help me out. And my advisor have been in the Iraqi military since 1972. He is older, Uh, he's been in the Iraqi military forever, and he was in the uh, administrative staff kind of thing. So he came in, he's been through the Iran-Iraq war, he's been through, he's been in the army before Saddam became president, uh, when Saddam was a wanted man. So he is the guy, been around forever, and he just said to me, and he said, he said, you know, it's a job, you're going to come out to a soldier, if you come out to a soldier not acting like what you should be acting as, he said, your soldier will be broken, and then you'll lose your unit. So I came out and I felt I had to put on a different mask every single day. To carry myself. And and the way I wanted to earn my respect among my unit is to have a psychology. To have some kind of psychology to use with the soldiers. Because I'm dealing with people who are from completely different cultures than mine. You know, I'm from Baghdad. I'm a city boy. These guys are from the south, deep south, deep north. Some of them don't even speak my language. Some of them are Kurds. They don't speak Arabic. But I used to... I, I, You could say I was more of the Americanized NCO. As always my enemy called me. The Americanized NCO. It's like my... I was more Americanized and what I did is I brought the experience of an American NCO because I was trained by an American NCO and I came in and I started dealing taking care of them versus being their boss and giving them the care which was was rare for them that no one ever cared for them before. Because in the Iraqi military, most of the sergeant majors are literally just old uh, bastards that didn't care about your life, who told you to jump off the mountain, and if you didn't jump, they'll punish you. And that has been in the Iraqi military. And when I came in, I realized if I come through a different psychology, use a different way of dealing with them, they will eventually eventually realize there is something different about you. And that's what really happened. It took me about two to three months. I, I took care of every soldier. If they had a personal problem, I took care of it immediately. I made sure that soldier was equipped with the equipment they're comfortable with, which most of them, their equipment wasn't up to date, but I made sure like all the weapons were up to date, their equipment was nice. I updated everything in that unit, including the pillow they were sleeping on. Literally everything. I'll come in, and they didn't look at me as their command sergeant major at the time. They looked at me as the guy that just loved them and took care of them. Um uh, I saw a different results within about two months. To this day, I get messages, and, and to this day, they contact me and talk to me and tell me, hey, you know what? You're the only person that treated us this way. Because unfortunately, the Iraqi military is such a shitty culture, and it's shitty culture because of what Saddam did. You know, This is a, this is the personality of Saddam Hussein and his family implemented in Iraq over the years. They, yeah, they're just heavy-handed. And I came in, I was more of the Americanized guy for them. So I gave them things that, no one ever did for them and the iraqi generals started feeling that their system is changing that there's some guy like myself coming in changing the system of course i was a huge threat uh, perhaps that's why the americans brought me to the mod that's the only reason why it's it, when i shined as an nco in the iraqi military is the only reason they said oh this would be the right nco for the iraqi mod
0: the mod The Iraqi Ministry of Defense This is the equivalent to the Pentagon in the United States This is a building in Baghdad Which houses all the highest ranking coalition leadership During the war It was also a hotbed for terrorist activity For obvious reasons And Hamidi was about to be put in charge of its security At 19 years old He arrives on station To daily attacks And to add insult to injury He notices that he's protecting former regime members These were murderers and terrorists one of which was responsible for the attack on Hamidi's town that he recounts in part one of our interview.
1: So when I came into the Iraqi MOD, it was a request from the American Special Forces. Uh, there was an American Special Forces officer who was actually setting up the security um, measures for the Iraqi MOD, preparing the MOD as a department, as a, as a building to be functional so we can start have Americans and Iraqis come into it. And there was a Marine who was a first protection uh, specialist who came in and set up the T-walls and everything. And perhaps that's when I got briefed on going to the MOD. So it was a request by the Americans to be, for me to be there. I, I came in and I like literally as the, the trucks were putting the T-walls, I walked through it, uh, told them what I was comfortable with. I told them what the towers needs to be and um, met some of the contractors who were going to be working with me in the checkpoint. And I walked around the building, and I started seeing like some of the people who are about to be coming to the building, like some of the people who are eventually going to start there. And the Iraqi military just got threatened big time. Because you're talking about some of these guys were former Saddam generals, yeah. high-ranking generals. And they are used to the slave-type NCO. They come in, they tell you what to do, and you, you do it. You, do, you don't discuss anything. They came in, and they saw a 19-year-old punk who is... Totally different, speaks English, talking to the Americans directly and setting up my unit without any of their permissions. Perhaps what the Iraqis wanted to do, they wanted to have some kind of control over my soldiers uh, because they wanted to make sure that my soldiers are scared of them. What I did differently is I came in and I made sure my soldiers are afraid of nobody, that don't worry about the type of ranks that are going to come into the MOD. When they're coming through this checkpoint, they're just a threat. When they come in this checkpoint, they're someone in civilian clothes. You don't know who they are. So you're going to treat them as anybody else. And they're going to go through the proper search. They're going to go because the Americans wanted somebody that can hold that checkpoint properly to make sure that Iraqis don't slip somebody in. Because you know how it is in our culture in Iraq. People do favors for each other. Oh, they will say, oh, this guy is really important. You can't search him. No, no, no. Can't do that. So um, when the checkpoint opened, I came in and I walked into the RKMOD and I saw the faces of the Iraqi employees, the generals. And I, it, it just, you walk in and you'd be like, fuck. And I just like, okay, so I'm supposed to protect the building from the enemy in the outside, but some of the enemy is already inside. The front checkpoint was getting hit every single day car bombs, um, uh, car bombs, uh, b- b- Mortar rounds, katushas, uh, suicide bombers. I mean, things were violent just to the front checkpoint alone. And you come inside, and there was these guys you have to worry about. So I set a rule where anybody comes into the building, because this is where the American officers are. This is where 50 to 60 American advisors that are working in the daily basis to build the infrastructure of the Iraqi military. And they cross to this area. This area is not technically an American area to an Iraqi area that's next to an American area. So when these individuals cross, they're under your responsibility. They're under your protections. And the front checkpoint alone is, has enough pressure on it because it sits right next to checkpoint one in the green zone, which is extremely dangerous place. And you share the same pedestrian entrance. So like people coming in in the first uh, place is the same place. So whatever threat that comes at that checkpoint, it's coming at you. And then you'll have... All this individuals coming through, so it was, it was like a, a shit show, in my opinion. It was, it was car bombs. It was like uh, random attacks. It was uh, katushas, mortars, suicide bombers, name it. And like some days they will hit checkpoint two, and some days they'll come and hit checkpoint one. one and it's car bombs. Usually, like they got brutalized over the years with with car bombs from 05 to 07, Those car bombs are like insanity, man. And it's a scary because it's a very big intersection in front of the M.O.D. And it gets to a bridge to go to middle of the It's It's a very heavy traffic area. And imagine you standing there looking at every car that this is a possibility. It could be a car bomb. It's going to blow up next to you. And if you saw some of the videos in my film, I'm standing there. I didn't care. At that point, if it's a car bomb that's driving by, what am I going to do? I'm going to do anything. It's going to blow up. It's going to end me. And at that point, you know, I realized my only mission was to protect these Americans. That's why they brought me there. Um, and I felt, you know, this was a responsibility that laid on me, that the Americans have brought me there because they trusted me. They wanted to make sure that I, no one slips anything to them while they're sitting doing their job from 7 to 4. General Mohan. Mohan was um, the nastiest person in the MOD. He's inside of my building. He's, he's coming inside every single day. It took me a lot of intel reporting to the U.S. intelligence to get this guy stopped because he was like cancer. So this guy used to be the intelligent officer that was in charge of the mass killing in the south of Iraq in 1991 when uh, Bush the father, you know, entered Iraq. But when they pulled out of Baghdad, the Republican guards came out and killed everybody. This was the intel officer for the Iraqi Republican guards that carried the mass Okay. The only reason he was in our new army, because anybody that Saddam put in prison um, back in then was considered as a political, you know, prisoner. Like myself, I went to prison. I was considered like, you know, whatever. He was put in prison by Saddam for six months, and he was let out And when he was back in the service. And he wasn't put on prison because he was against Saddam, because Saddam would kill you if you were against him. He was put in prison because he got drunk. And he told a joke about Saddam. And Saddam decided to punish him, put him in prison for about six months. And he came out. He used that to come back into the new Iraqi army and take command of it. So this is how Mohan actually entered the political process. And we had a law in Iraq that was made in our first constitution ever saying that anybody who was involved in the Ba'ath Party should not be around. It should not be part of the Iraqi military anything. He figured out a way to be in there. And he said, yeah, I wasn't in the back I was in prison. So he used the prison background, but he never told anybody who he was. But some of the Iraqi officers who served in the military know who this guy is. So when I see this guy, something about him immediately got my attention. And at that time, the Americans did not realize that this guy's dream was to, it's, it's insanity when you think about it, his dream was to build a massive Iraqi military, strong Iraqi military. He owns it and runs it. And he would kick the Americans out. He, he wants to take over. And it's insanity. If you think about it, like the guy, and he sat in his first meeting to this day. I remember that. And I haven't talked about this before, like in any podcast or anything, because not many people read the book or understand this guy. Mohan came in and met with a colonel in 2003. And his name is Colonel Cox. He told Colonel Cox that we need rocket's power. We need this kind of weapons. And they're, Americans went like, oh, hold on. What do you need? What are you doing with all this? This is all anti-armored stuff. What are you talking about? No, 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 you're not getting anything above the PKC. Sorry. And probably that's the reason why our Iraqi military was not equipped with the right equipment for two years because they probably were afraid of us. And they couldn't trust us based on this asshole asking for specific rockets that will blow up Bradleys and Abrams. That's stupidity. He came in, he already had a group. He already had like a, an organization that was established outside the Iraqi military. So what his dream was, he came in and brought people from his own organizations who used to be Iraqi military officers. And if, let's say, they nominated you tomorrow for a new job, and there's about six people nominated, and about one of them is a member of his organization, which is a terrorist organization. That's all bottom line of it. What he will do to get rid of the five competitors, he will assassinate them. He will have an assassination team waiting for them outside of the MOD. As soon as they come out, they get killed. And what's so crazy is that after I became an intelligent asset after I got recruited by the US intelligence, it officially became an intelligent asset. And my job was to report on inside, anybody inside of that building and build the dossiers and build a file of them. They appointed an Iraqi officer, his name is General Ayad Al Musawi, who later got shot in the head with two bullets. And he left the, he got a nominated for the Iraqi general for the Iraqi operations center, to be basically the jock kind of general for the Iraqi operations. He went home. He got killed. So the American officers who were sitting there collecting, you know, doing the briefs for the commander of the U.S. troops in Iraq, they said, oh, well, look like terrorists cashed up to him and killed him. We'll nominate the next guy. The next guy got nominated, went home and died. Got killed. Two people in one week were gone. So I walked into back then to Colonel Burke, who was the American intelligence officer in charge. And I said, Colonel, didn't you realize by this time, if you name the third one, he's going to die. So don't name anybody. And he asked me, he's like, who do you think it is? I said, it's Mohan. He said, wh- why makes you think? I said, I nominate him. And if he dies, <laughs> and then, you know, I'm, I'll be responsible for any failure for the intelligence here. And immediately, Colonel Burke turned all his efforts into figuring out who the hell is this guy. And we had to build into who is behind him, who are the officers that working for him that we don't know that working for him. So we were confused into who. And that's where my job came in. That's where I was collecting information, trying to figure out who is connected to that tree, who is connected to that cell of Mohan, because you had Al Qaeda. You had Islamic State. You had Anak Shabendis, You have the Battle Corps, which is the Iranian proxies and everybody. And then you had Mohan. So imagine Mohan became his own entity and his own terrorist organization from scratch that you didn't even know about about a month ago. And he was more of a threat to anybody. Perhaps I was the biggest threat for Mohan. He hated me with his guts. He will go and kill anybody that the Americans are making friends with. So what Mohan was doing... Is He would go inside of the MOD and he said, why the hell do we have an NCO that speaks English, that talks to the Americans? Why can't we transfer this guy? And that's when the American says, oh, no, no, you can do whatever you want, but this guy, you can't tra- he can't be transferred. So that bothered him. That, so what he did is he came through my checkpoint. He had like a security guards that he worked for him. If they come through my checkpoint, I search them. And what he tried to do is he tried to intimidate my soldiers. And I went and I made it clear to him. I said, look, inside of the MOD, I will salute you. I will salute you as a proper Iraqi general. And that's how the army works. But if you come through my checkpoint in a civilian clothes, which nobody can come through my checkpoint in uniform. You have to know if someone comes from outside in uniform, they'll die. You know what I mean? By themselves, especially if they're coming from home. I said, but if you're coming through my checkpoint, I don't care who you are. And I'll treat you just like any other civilian. So if you want to obey to the rules, you obey to the rules. If you don't, so what he's trying to do, he's trying to intimidate my soldiers. As two soldiers searched his car, he went inside and made a proper a transfer order of the two soldiers that searched the car to send them to a, a unit in the Anbar province as a punishment to intimidate the soldiers. And that's where my command sergeant major skills came in, is I would take that order And I will go to the Americans I will say, okay guys, if this order doesn't stop, I will pull my soldiers at the checkpoint and we'll close down the MOD. And the Americans will go to the Iraqi chief of the Joint Staff, they'll cancel that order, and they froze Mohan from making any orders further. For for American audience, imagine you're working against your own chief of the Joint Staff. Um, I didn't even know my role at that point, but slowly I started getting what my role was.
0: Hamidi took his role as defender of the Iraqi MOD very seriously. If he didn't, he would have either succumbed to the pressures placed on him from corrupt politicians or outright killed for his loyalty to the Americans. In one instance, newly acting Minister of Defense, the Iraqi version of the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, brought his own security detail with him to the MOD. They were made up of battle-hardened members of Al-Qaeda.
1: I figured that I was the defender for the Americans in that building. Um, I could have been in any Iraqi unit. But that was my job. That was the, what I was meant to do. And, um, you know, when when things started getting politicized and, you know, the Iraqi government was getting uh, divided based on the religious background, things started getting more dangerous. Because now terrorists are not in a hide mode anymore. Terrorists became political parties. They started coming into the, the process. And they started getting jobs. They started getting positions. So the... The Ministry of Defense, after Hazel Meshallan, which is, was a British citizen, I mean, the guy was a thief, but he wasn't a bad guy. He wasn't a terrorist. That's the one thing that you had to think about. And imagine you get replaced by a guy from the Umbar province. So we get a new minister from the Umbar province. That's the Secretary of Defense. That's the guy who's going to call all the shots inside of the MOD. He shows up. And, of course, when you get a position like that, you have to form security, bodyguards, PSD. You have to do this really fast. So he left that for his nephew. His name is Ziad Adelemi. Nephew came in with him. And the nephew was a member of Al-Qaeda. Sitting in the Anbar province. Fighting against the Americans. Gets a call saying your uncle just became the minister of defense. So guess what he did? He brought his old entire Al-Qaeda cell as a PSD. As a security detail. So when he came in, he came with like 200 men around him. You know, when you're in the MOD, you receive the Minister of Defense. He comes in. You know, you put the red carpet. They walk into their office. You show them where their office is, and they start working. And the people that got out of the car, you just looked at him immediately. The first reaction in your body naturally is I put my hand on my gun. As soon as these guys got out of the car, my hand went on the gun. It, on the- Without even... St- Talking to them, you would be like bad guys. It's it's right there. The reason why, because religious guys in Iraq had a very dark spot in their forehead because they pray to the ground. You know, they pray to something really hard, so it makes a very round, dark, uh, dark uh, spot in their forehead. Which, if you go Google some of the extremists, Islamic extremists, you'll see that there's a dark spot in the middle of the forehead. And they got out, they were all military age. The faces, the the looks, the age, everything about these guys. They were like Republican Guard, Special Guard, maybe former Special Force. Like Who these guys are. They got out, and the weapons they had in their hand, they had AK-47s. You look at the AK-47s that was in their hands, it was military issued. These were not random AK-47s. So look like they are AK-47s from back in the day that they ever kept. And probably were using it against the Americans. So they come up, and then they deployed, like, ants inside of the MOD. For me, when I saw that, of course, you can't go tell the minister, like, who the hell are you? But you look at these guys, and they deployed inside of the MOD, and there was a a leader who was in charge of that group. And the nephew went up, you know, with the minister sitting there. And I, in a, for me, I, my soldiers are looking at me like, what are you going to do? Like, these guys are inside of the building. I'm like, well, you know, you defend the checkpoint. But I have to discuss this with the Americans. Because the Americans want me to protect them. But right now I can't protect them. Because the, there's bad guys inside of the building. And I come in and I started looking at these guys. I said, look, let's keep an eye on them. Let's not do anything. Um, let's act properly, professional. And they came in. And this leader. And I, I look at one thing. One thing that got my attention. One thing that I, I'm looking, like, from the outside of the screen kind of thing is that there was an Americans in the building and every time an american passed i'm looking at the way they're looking at that american and you know those advisors were high ranking officers you know major to a full book colonel they have maybe a 9 millimeter in their legs that's that's all they have you know and they're coming in they're like hi everybody you know they're all like we're in the reserves and everything they're like very not like trained or prepared for any kind of combat actions like that And I would look at the way they looked at the Americans. And as soon as I saw that, I looked at them the way they turned and looked at an American. And they asked each other, like, what kind of rank is this? And they're like, it's a major. And the shocking thing in their face. Because they're fighting in the Ambar province. Where the hell do they see a major? They don't. You know what I mean? For them, so they were like, these are all officers. And they're high rank. And you have to know, in their mind, this is a high-value target. So they look and they, when I saw that immediately, I'm like, I'm going down. I'm like the MOD has fallen officially, and I don't know what their next moves are, but I better be prepared.
0: That concludes part three of my interview with Hamidi Jazeem, the terrorist whisperer. Here is a sample from part four.
1: I said, well, are they armed? They said, Yeah, they're all armed. They're all carrying the you know the AK forty sevens and everything, and they got out. One bullet right now, it gets fired. We're having a battlefield inside of my building. I said, that's just going to be insanity. I said, if you guys don't come right now and detain these guys, I am going to go door to door in this building and I'm going to have a firefight. And I know you probably won't expect to have a firefight inside of the Pentagon, but we're about to have one here in our own.